Amen. Thank you, worship team. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ, which reminds me of the Puritan who sat down to a meal of stale bread and water and said, thank God, all this and Jesus too. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, he meant that if you have Christ, you have everything. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that we have everything because he has everything and he's brought us into union with him. So we have much, to say the least, to be thankful for. If you would turn to Romans chapter 8. What I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, complete this discussion of holiness and happiness today. Excuse me. And then next Sunday is Mother's Day, and so we'll look at 1 Timothy 2 in light of Mother's Day. Then the following Sunday, we will resume our study in Revelation, and we'll complete that. And so today, what I'd like to do is focus on verses 12 through 14 again. Uh, Obviously, at this portion of the book, Paul is talking about the good news to the saint, the good news to Christians, what is different about Christians than unbelievers, and what our life should look like in light of the changes that have happened to us in Christ. And so in verse 12, Paul says in Romans 8, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now these verses talk about the connection between holiness and happiness in this way. When he talks about, at the end of verse 13, you will live, he's not simply talking about physical life, he's talking about eternal life. And John 17 says eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus. And we know from Psalm 16 that to know God is to enjoy fullness of joy and pleasures at his right hand forever. It's truly to know full and lasting happiness. So to live means to have the greatest happiness you could ever have in God. And he says that closely connected to that is the issue of putting to death the deeds of the body. Now, he's not talking about any deeds of the body, putting to death eating or sleeping or anything like that. He's talking about putting to death evil deeds of the body, which means putting to death sin. And that's the pursuit of holiness. So that there is a close connection here in these verses between holiness and happiness, the pursuit of holiness and the pursuit of happiness in God. The reality is the Bible says in all kinds of ways that God created us to be holy and happy in God and in his love. And the key to happiness is holiness. And the key to holiness is faith, especially faith in Jesus. Romans 15, it says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. If you have all joy and peace, you think you might be happy? All joy and peace in believing. And so I want to talk about this some more 
The quote that I've had on the screen for several weeks now by Charles Spurgeon says, Holiness is the royal road to happiness. The death of sin is the life of joy. That phrase, death of sin, is exactly what Paul is talking about here in Romans 8, 12 through 14. Putting to death sin is the pursuit of the life of joy, which is the pursuit of happiness. Not happiness in things, happiness in God. And so we want to continue talking about that. And the context of this discussion is the fact that he's talking to brethren. He says in verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation to live this way, to pursue our holiness and to pursue our happiness. And we're under obligation because we are, as it says in verse 14, sons of God. The obligation comes from the fact that if you read chapter 5, you find out that we have a new position before God. We're forgiven and we're righteous. Read chapters 6 and 7, you find out that we have a new person. We're not the old person we used to be, we're a new person. Sin is no longer our master, but we still have a battle with indwelling sin. And in chapter 8, we find out that we have a new power. The Holy Spirit lives in us. God himself lives in us to enable us to put to death sin. And true believers aren't simply content with being free from the penalty of sin, which is hell. They long to be free from the power and the presence of sin. And that's why Jesus could say, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. That is the promise. Well, what, I, what I want to highlight is, these verses also highlight the fact that you can either be in the spirit or in the flesh. And again, let me just remind you of, of what the flesh is talking about when he says, we are not to live according to the flesh. In verse 12 and following, the flesh is a reference to the the remnants of sin, who, which used to be our master, which is no longer our master, but sin personified in Romans 7 is a picture of this principle of evil that is still in us, that opposes the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in us, as it says in Galatians 5. And so it's helpful if you realize that Paul could say in Romans 7, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who desires to do good. And he recognizes that principle of evil, that law of sin in him as an enemy. And as a Christian, we realize that sin is not our friend. Sin is our enemy. And therefore, it's good to know your enemy so that you can fight your enemy in pursuit of holiness and happiness in God. In our small group, uh, we're going through a book entitled Knowing Sin, which sounds like a very unhappy thing to do, (laughs) is to read a book on knowing sin. And yet it is essential to pursuing our happiness, to know sin, to know our enemy, and to know how to fight that enemy. And so that's what I want to kind of describe for you here is what is he talking about the flesh? What is he talking about when he references sin? And I think it's helpful to think about the reality that the Bible talks about sin in all kinds of ways. But for me, it's very helpful to realize that sin can be pictured as a tree. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, uh, two trees are um, named in the Garden of Eden. 
there's the tree of life in the middle of the garden. And there's also another tree in the middle of the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God says, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Which means you've got the tree of life and the tree of death. Those are the two trees that you have in the garden. And every tree has a root system, has a trunk, and then has branches and leaves and fruit, if it's a fruit tree. And so I want us to think this morning in terms of sin, in terms of its roots, its trunk, and its fruit. Because the battle of sin is a process, or it's, it's a, a means of attacking the root, the trunk, and not just the fruit. So many times we look at the fruit, but we don't ever think about, well, what lies beneath the fruit? What is actually uh, fueling the fruit that I see in my life and that other people see in their lives? And so what I'd like for us to do is, first of all, begin with the root. And the root of sin, I'm going to argue, is believing lies. If you go all the way back to Romans chapter 1, um, Paul lays a foundation in Romans chapter 1, and he talks about um, the history of mankind. Now, I'm not going to take time to read the whole chapter, but let me just highlight some things he says in Romans 1. In verse 18, he talks about the fact that mankind has suppressed the truth. We've suppressed the truth. And then he goes on to say in verse 21, that we've become futile in our speculations and our foolish hearts have been darkened as mankind. He says in verse 22, professing to be wise, we, they, have become fools. And then he says in verse 25, they, speaking of mankind in general, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So you see what he's arguing there? He's arguing that what we see happening uh, in the world today is rooted in the exchange of the truth for a lie. If we go back to the Garden of Eden and we think about the very first sin of mankind, we see Eve and she's talking to the serpent and the serpent's talking to her and the serpent, which we know is Satan, says, indeed has God said, meaning is this really the truth? Has God really told you the truth? And the serpent goes on to tell Eve, you surely will not die. God is lying to you. Let me tell you what the truth is. The truth is God knows that in the day you will eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So how did this uh, start for Eve? It started with a questioning of the truth of God and a beginning to move into a place where she started believing a lie or lies. Uh, if you go to the book of Hebrews, you don't have to, but if you read chapter 3 and 4, and I would encourage you to go back and look at these scriptures on your own. If you look at chapter 3 and 4, uh, in one place, the writer of Hebrews says, we see that they, speaking of Israel, not entering into the promised rest of God, it says in verse 19 of chapter 3, we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Then if you go to chapter 4, verse 6, 
it says they failed to enter because of disobedience. So which was it? They failed to enter because of unbelief or failed to enter because of disobedience? The answer is yes. But the argument is the disobedience, the outward observable disobedience was the fruit or the root, yeah, the fruit of the root of unbelief. And like we said in Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, which means unbelief isn't not believing anything. Unbelief is believing a lie. That's what unbelief is. Everybody believes something. Nobody believes nothing. The question is, what do we believe? Do we believe the truth or do we believe a lie? That's why in 2 Thessalonians 2, it talks about the fact that in the end times, those who refuse a love of the truth, refuse to believe the truth, will believe what is false. And as a result, uh, fall away. Which is understandable in light of the fact that the Bible describes the devil as the father of lies. He's a liar and he's the father of lies. And if he can't get you to believe a lie, he will seek to kill you. He's a murderer and a liar. And so we have to understand that when we're fighting sin, we need to fight it from the root up. We need to realize that the root of our sin is the fact that we're not thinking rightly. We're not believing rightly. I've used the illustration before of how they train elephants. All of you have heard this illustration, I'm sure, how baby elephants are tied to a stake with a rope. They try to get away, and they can't. They become convinced that no matter how old they get and how big they get, they still can't break away from that rope. And so they don't change the strength of the rope. They can still tie up a 2,000-pound elephant to a little rope, to a stake, and that elephant will not believe that he can move. He can, but he doesn't believe he can. Which means the elephant is enslaved to a lie. It's the lie that keeps the elephant bound, not the rope. And so the Bible tells us in all kinds of ways that it's lies. It's been that way from the beginning, and that's why Satan does what he does, because he's a liar. And that's how he deceives us and seeks to kill us, is through lies. And so the first thing I have to ask myself when I'm fighting sin, trying to put to death the evil deeds of the body, is what lies am I believing? What lies am I believing? Secondly, let's think a little bit about the trunk of the tree. Um, there's a trunk that flows out of the roots before you get to the fruit. And the trunk, I believe, is what the Bible often calls idolatry. It says in Romans 1 again that Paul says that mankind has exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images. And he says that we believe the lie and then we worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator in Romans 1.25. So we exchanged the truth of God for a lie and then we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, which means we moved from unbelief into idolatry. We started worshiping created things instead of worshiping uh, the creator. 
That's exactly what happened with Eve. She listened to and believed the lie of Satan. She began thinking wrongly and believing wrongly. And then it says in verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise... And it goes on from there. So what's happening there? She's beginning to see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in a different light. No longer is it the tree of death. All of a sudden, it becomes the tree of life. She begins to look at it and say, wow, I think maybe this is where my hope is. I thought it was in God and his truth and the tree of life that he's provided. But you know what? I see it in a whole different light now. I really have begun to see the truth. And the truth is, this tree is the tree of life. When it's really the tree of death. She had transferred her hope from God to a creation. From the creator to a creation. And looked to that tree for the help and happiness that she desired. And so the root of unbelief shapes the trunk of idolatry, worshiping something other than God. David Pallison, uh, who's gone on to be with the Lord, uh, was a, a biblical counselor, and he talked about this dynamic. He talked about the fact that if you read the little book of 1 John, which has 105 verses, the last word of that book is a call to fight idolatry. The last thing John tells the saints is, he says, Beloved children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. And David Pallison asked the question in a 105-verse treatise on living in vital fellowship with Jesus, the Son of God, how on earth does that unexpected command merit the final word? But it merits the final word because... What we put our hope in is very, very powerful. Um, The argument can be made that the most prevalent sin in the Old Testament is idolatry. In the New Testament, uh, you could argue that that idolatry is talked about in terms of desires or lusts. And so the, the root is lies that cause the trunk of lust, powerful desires that cause us to say, wow, the tree of death looks really good. I think it might make me wise. I think it might actually do for me what I really want to see done. And so I have to ask myself in fighting sin, not only what lies am I believing, but where have I misplaced my hope? Where have I begun to transfer my hope from God to my spouse, or to my children, or to my job, or to my health, or to to my pleasures, and my entertainment, and uh, gaming, whatever it might be. Where have I made the transfer like Eve has? And then, going on from there, you have the root, and then you have the trunk, and then you have the branches and leaves, and the fruit, if it's a fruit tree. And I would argue that the fruit is the actual disobedience that we can identify in our lives, which I would say um, certainly includes sinful words and sinful deeds, but I also would say it includes sinful ways of thinking, that it's not just uh, 
um, individual thoughts, but it's the way that I think about life, that that is a fruit of wrong thinking and wrong believing and wrong hoping and wrong desires. And so when you think about it, in verse 6 it says, after all that took place, um, Eve took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. That was the fruit of disobedience, which flowed out of believing a lie, putting her hope in the tree, and then disobeying the explicit command of God. And that's what happens when we sin. And so we have to understand that the fruit of unbelief and idolatry is disobedience. Um, If you go on, if you took the time to read the rest of Romans 1, which is a great chapter in describing our problems as mankind, uh, he'll go on to talk about all kinds of sins. After he's talked about uh, the reality of believing a lie and worshiping idols, he begins to talk about sinful thought patterns like a depraved mind, envy, strife, deceit, malice, being haters of God, insolent, arrogant, without understanding. He begins talking about sinful words like gossip and slander and boasting and, and giving hearty approval to those who sin. He talks about sinful deeds uh, in reference to immorality and homosexuality and Uh, doing things, he says, that are not proper, all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, murder, being inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Do you want to know why your kids don't obey? You want want to know why you didn't obey when you were a kid? The Bible says it flows out of believing lies and putting your hope in the wrong thing. That's why all of us disobey God, disobey authorities, disobey whoever. Paul is saying that all these sins, all these fruits are flowing out of um, the root of unbelief. It's interesting, um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian author and and, um, philosopher, and he went through the prison camps under communist Russia, and he talks about the fact that when He was living in Russia under the communist regime. He said this about um, listening to the government. He said, we know they are lying. They know they are lying. They know we know they are lying. We know they know we know they are lying, but they are still lying. Why? Because if you're going to get people to do what you want them to do, then you have to create a different narrative. What Satan did, he created a different narrative. He kept on lying. And people can say, that's that's not true, that's not true. Does that keep Satan from continuing to lie? No, he continues lying because lies are powerful because people will come to believe them. Solzhenitsyn said idolatry, excuse me, not idolatry, but ideology, which is a way of thinking, uh, a philosophy, ideology. That is what gives evil doing its long-sought justification and gives the evildoer the necessary steadfastness and determination. So how can people do evil things? And how can they continue doing evil things? 
because they believe that something is true. They have an ideology. And those lies that are being believed are producing the evil actions. He says, thanks to ideology, the 20th century was fated to experience evil doing on a scale calculated in the millions. And he's talking about 20 million or so or 100 million overall that were killed in uh, around the world as a result of communism, I believe, is what he's referring to. And so he's making a connection between ultimately what we think and what we do. And our hopes and dreams and desires are wrapped up in that. And so when it comes to the fruit of my life, what, what I'm saying and what I'm doing, I have to ask myself, in my fight against sin, what is the fruit of my life? What is wrong with what I am thinking or saying or doing? Or what is wrong with what I'm not thinking or not saying or not doing? The fruit of my life as well. Well, what I'd like to do is talk at this point about, so how do we attack the root, the trunk, and the fruit? And the first thing I would say is, if you look at verse uh, 13 of Romans 8, he says, by the Spirit, we are to put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit. Which means, I cannot put to death my sin. The Spirit is a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's a reference to God. God has to put to death my sin. But, he says, we are responsible for doing it. God has to do it, and I'm responsible to do it. Which means I'm responsible to depend on the Holy Spirit to put to death my sin. So how do I depend on the Holy Spirit responsibly to put to death the root of unbelief, the trunk of idolatry, and the fruit of disobedience in my life? Well, first of all, we do it by feeding on the truth of God's Word. We overcome lies with the truth. That makes sense, right? If I'm gonna I can't fight lies with lies. So I fight lies with truth, and that's why the Lord Jesus and John eight could say, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And then he goes on in verse thirty six and says, If the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. So which is it? His word makes you free or the Son makes you free? Yes. Is it the Spirit that makes you free or is it the Word that makes you free? Yes. The Son, through the Holy Spirit, through the Word, sets us free from sin. That's the whole context there. And if you read on uh, in John verse four, in uh, chapter 14, uh, the Lord Jesus speaks of the Spirit as the Spirit of truth. In, verse, in chapter 15, he speaks of the helper being the spirit of truth. In chapter 16, he speaks of the spirit of truth who will guide us into all the truth. And then in Ephesians 6, it says that the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And in that context, Paul is talking about fighting, obviously, um, the sinful influences in the world. But it also includes fighting the sinful influence in my own heart. And the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, the truth of God, because the Spirit is the Spirit of the truth. We might wonder why the the first thing that Paul says at the beginning of his major uh, encouragement to apply the gospel in Romans 12, he spends 11 chapters talking about the gospel and, 
at the end, how it applies to national Israel. Then he begins his section on living the Christian life. And he begins that section by saying in Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Then he tells us what part of our body we should begin with. We're to give all of our bodies to God, but he says, especially present your mind. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, so that you will do the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about laying aside the old self, which is our flesh, and putting on the new self, which is the new person we are in Christ. And he says you do that by being renewed in the spirit of your mind. And so Paul tells us how we are to fight this fight. We are to feed on the truth of God's word. And in John 17, the Lord Jesus said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, George Mueller, one of my favorite um, saints, um, said this, According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you, but I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. And then he tells us, practically what that means. He says, this happiness is to be obtained through the study of the Holy Scriptures. We have to be set free from our believing lies about God and about ourselves and about life in order to be truly happy in God himself, not just the things that God gives. And so, we need to feed our souls on the truth and be careful of media and movies and news reports and everything else that's feeding us things that aren't true. And if we're neglecting the word of God, but we're just feeding on what the world is telling us, we should not be surprised if we're believing lies, reinforcing lies in our own hearts. And we need to battle that. Uh, with the word of God. So we feed on the truth. Secondly, and that's how we attack the root. We feed on the truth. We attack the trunk of idolatry by fixing your hope on God for help and happiness. It's interesting how the Bible talks about fixing our hope on God and things of God. In, in First Peter, Peter says, Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then how does he tell us how to pursue that? He says, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope on God and what he's promised you if you want to be a holy person. 1 John 3, 3 says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. So the pursuit of holiness means I need to fix my hope for help and happiness on God. And prayer is a very important key thing 
for fixing my hope. That's why neglecting our prayer life is another thing that undermines our pursuit of happiness. If we neglect the word of God, we undermine our pursuit of happiness. If we neglect prayer, we undermine our pursuit of happiness in God. In Romans 12, it says rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Those things are all connected. In 1 Timothy 5, it says, speaking of the the widow indeed, uh, she has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Continuing in prayer is connected to fixing her hope on God. Um, In Psalm 38, It says, for I hope in you, O Lord, you will answer, O Lord, my God. Our prayers and our hope are connected. Maybe our prayer life isn't what it could be because our hope is misplaced. Our hope is in other things. But once our hope is fixed on God, it encourages us to pray. And obviously the Bible tells us to pray and ask for the Holy Spirit. In Luke 11, it says, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And connected to that, praying for the Holy Spirit, praying that God would um, enable us to overcome sin, is praying that God would help us believe his promises, to believe what the word says, and to uh, put our hope in him. Um, We're to fight the lusts of idolatry with the promises of God. It says in 2 Peter 1 that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Then he goes on to say he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. How do you fight misplaced hope? How do you fight lust, which is desiring wrongly or wrongly desiring? The promises of God. You put your hope on God and what he's promised you. And you pray for grace to believe what he's promised you and to live in light of it. Uh, John Bunyan, uh, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, talked about the fact that when he was in prison, that he had to die to things like his wife and his children and being back home and all those things. He could not make them an idol. He said he had to, um, as he put it, um, he had to look, live upon God that is invisible. He had to make sure his hope was in God and not in his circumstances, not in his wife and children or getting out of prison or anything like that, but that his hope was in God. And he actually prayed this prayer. He said at one point, I find that my heart is slow to go to God. And when it does go to him, it does not seem to want to stay with him. So that very often I am forced in my prayers first to beg of God that he would take my heart and set it on himself. And then when it is there, that he would keep it there. That's what your prayer life is for. It is to pray that God would set your heart on him and keep it there. Because our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, don't we feel it? Don't we know it? And so 
Fixing our hope on God is crucial in fighting sin. And then finally, we fight the root, we fight the trunk, but we also fight the fruit that we see. Um, And that means we have to actually rise up and say no. Now, just rising up and say no, apart from the other things I've already said, isn't going to work. That's just self-will. That's just self-dependence. That's just trying to overcome it in my own strength. But if I am depending on the Spirit through the Word of God and through prayer, then I can do what the Bible tells me to do, which is really interesting when you think about it. Because if you think about what the Bible says, it tells us to put to death sinful thought patterns. Uh, For instance, in Ephesians 4, 26, it says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Which means, do not let anger continue. It's basically saying, rise up and say no to that anger. Or, in John 14, 1, Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. Think about that. He says, you do not let your heart be troubled. You're troubled. Don't be fearful. Don't worry. Don't continue on in that thought pattern. Rise up and say no. He says it twice on that night. Do not let your heart be troubled. He's saying that we are to say a sanctified no to sin. Wrong thought patterns, but also wrong words. It says in Ephesians 4, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. You, me, don't let it happen. Take responsibility for what comes out of your mouth. Say, no, I'm not going to say that. I might feel strongly like I want to, but I'm going to say no to that. To hear what the Bible is saying, let, do not let it happen. Say no to that. And then actions, in Romans 6, Paul has already said, before we get to Romans 8, in verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts, which is the trunk. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. He says, do not let sin reign. Who is he talking to? He's talking to me. He's talking to you. He's talking to every Christian. He says, do not let it happen. He's telling us that we are to make a conscious choice to say no to wrong thought patterns, wrong words, and wrong actions. Now, if I do it in my own strength, I have no hope of any change. But that's not where my hope is. My my hope is to say, Lord, you've told me to say no. I'm going to trust that you're going to make this powerful. I'm going to trust that you're going to put some power behind this pursuit of holiness, this pursuit of obedience. Obviously, um, a great example of this saying no to temptation is the Lord Jesus. He gives us a model of what this should look like when he's tempted in the wilderness And Satan comes to him and says, turn these stones into bread after he hasn't eaten for 40 days. 
And Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He doesn't literally say no, but what is he, what is he saying? He's saying no. I'm not going to do that. Because the word of God says this. I'm not going there. Then the tempter comes and says, you know, uh, this is what the Bible says. So why don't you uh, just see if God's going to really keep his word and cast yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple? And Jesus says, on the other hand, it does say that, but on the other hand, it says this over here. On the other hand, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test which he took the word of God, the sword of the spirit, and said, no. And then finally, uh, Satan says, if you worship me, give you everything you want, then you come to be king. And Jesus says, go, Satan, or no, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so Jesus pictures for us how we are to fight sin. We are to say no to when we see our thoughts running along a certain pattern of sinful thinking. And when we see that we're speaking wrongly or acting wrongly, we are to rise up against it. We are to fight it, but we're not to fight it in dependence on ourselves. We fight it in dependence on the Holy Spirit. That's why in Galatians 5, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Again, Alexander Solzhenitsyn um, said this was the situation in Russia. They were just lying, lying, lying to try to keep people under control, to enslave them. And he said, what is the answer to being enslaved by lies in a communist country? He says, he, and he wrote a paper called Live Not By Lies. He said, the only answer is the truth. You have to refuse to support lies. That's where we are in our country right now. And we might think, well, isn't it compassionate to kind of go along with the lie? No, it's evil. It's unloving to go along with the lie. You cut people off from the gospel when you do that. It's loving to speak the truth in love, to speak the truth. We are not to support lies. And so he would say, the simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie. One word of truth outweighs the world. He says, let your credo be this, let the lie come into the world, let it even triumph, but not through me. If all the world goes that way, I won't. I, it's, I will trust the Lord. I will trust his word. I'm not going the path of the lie. I've mentioned Rosaria Butterfield. She used to be a uh, homosexual activist and became a Christian. Now as a pastor's wife, and she talked about uh, the fact that we have to be careful of, of supporting the lie by using transgendered pronouns, which she said for a while she used those, and then she repented. She realized she was supporting the lie, and she asked the question, does any real Christian believe crafting a relationship on falsehood 
will give the gospel a better hearing? And is that how people are converted? By meeting God on sin's terms and hearing nice things about themselves? Then she goes on to talk about a woman who had identified as a man, but then repented and she uh, got saved, uh, was saved by God, by God's grace. And uh, this woman named Laura wrote a book called Transgender to Transformed. And in that book, she says, or at least Rosera Butterfield says about her testimony in this book, her church and parents had refused to use her preferred pronouns throughout all the years she lived in the false identity of transgenderism. Why did she return to them? Their refusal to lie compelled her trust. Rosaria goes on to say, Laura is among the most beautiful, godly, and feminine women I know now. So her testimony is, God used her parents and her church's fidelity to the truth to save her out of the lie. We're not being compassionate if we support the lies. We're actually being loving when we speak the truth. And we're to speak the truth in love with compassion and understanding. So when we think about the world around us, we need to understand that. Even when we think about our own battle, when you wake up in the morning, like Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, um, somebody's talking to you. Who's talking to you? Your own thoughts are talking to you. And a lot of those thoughts are just your flesh rising up in fear and anxiety and unbelief with lies, encouraging your anger and your bitterness and your pursuit of happiness in the world. And he says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And he's basing that on Psalm 42, where the psalmist says, why art thou cast down, O my soul? And then he goes on to say, this is the truth and this is what I'm going to believe. And so he says, we need to speak up to ourselves and say, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. I will tell you the truth. Well, let me wrap this up um, by asking the question. So what does this sound like in real life? And um, I come from a, a, a... a family of worry warts. And I am prone to that. And so I'm going to use this because it helps me think about my own fight. But let's think about worry and anxiety and fear. Let's say for husbands and fathers, um, the lie that many husbands and fathers might believe is my job provides for me and my family. The misplaced hope would be I need to do whatever I can to keep my job. The wrong patterns of thought, words, and deeds would be, I need to go along with the LGBTQ agenda and shady practices at work. That's what, it, that's what the temptation is. That is lie, misplaced hope, and wrong patterns of thought, words, and deeds that we need to fight. What about wives and mothers in light of anxiety and fear? Let's say with wives and mothers and the whole issue of children, the lie that they could believe is my children are simply a reflection of my mothering. Simply a reflection of my mothering. The misplaced hope could be, I need to do whatever I can to make my children love me or do whatever I can to be what I want them to be. 
The fight is to fight wrong patterns of thought, words, and deeds like, I need to make sure my kids are in all the best activities and schools and groups, no matter the cost to our family life or church life. That's just one illustration of how we can wrestle with these lies and misplaced hopes and the kinds of things that even as Christians we are tempted to do, all of us. What about being single and wanting to get married? Talking about Sarah's marriage today. The lie would be my value is rooted in whether I can find a spouse or not. The misplaced hope is I can't be happy unless I'm married. The wrong patterns of thought, words, and deeds would be I need to do whatever I have to do to get married. Whatever I have to do. I've been there. I know exactly what that kind of thinking leads to. Or we can think about children, younger children, and the issue of playing with toys. Um, The lie would be, I know what I need to be happy. Isn't that what children think? I know what I need to be happy. And all of us are just big kids in a lot of ways. What's the misplaced hope? My parents and the God who gave them to me don't care about my happiness like I do. So my hope is in me. I know what I need and what I want. The fight is wrong patterns of thought, words, and deeds that say, I will do whatever I need to do to get my way. I'm standing here and I'm not moving. And that's when the power struggle begins. So whether you're a little child, whether you're a single, whether you're a woman or a man or a wife, I mean, that's our fight. Those are just illustrations of the kinds of things that we have to fight in terms of lies and misplaced hope and wrong patterns of thought, words, and deeds. And these things, feeding on the truth, fixing your hope on God, and fighting with a no to sin and a yes to love, what God says love really looks like, is so crucial. Let me just wrap this up. When I began, I talked about the fact that the reality is when God says rejoice in the Lord always, he's commanding us to be happy. But he also says that we're to be holy. And the Bible argues in all kinds of ways that in order to be happy, we need to be holy. But in order to be holy, we need faith. And that faith is about all kinds of truth that needs to fight all kinds of lies. But at the heart of our faith needs to be faith in the love of God promised us through Jesus. Being very specific here. Faith in the love of God promised us in Jesus. And there's a reason why I say that, because in 1 John 4, John says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. And he's talking in the context of faith in Jesus. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So far we've said that there's no condemnation for Christians, which means we're not defined by our sin. There's no separation from the love of God. Therefore, we're not defined by our suffering. But we also realize that there is no or need be no fear for Christians because we are being loved perfectly. And when we truly believe we're being loved perfectly, it sets us free from fear. That's why in Ephesians 3, Paul prays for the saints and he says, I pray that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Why? Because perfect love, faith in perfect love, sets us free 
from sin. Let me just close with this. Um, Charles Spurgeon, again, encourages us to make sure we're fighting for our happiness. He says, Beloved, if we are not as happy as the days are long in these summer months, it is entirely our, it is entirely our own fault. Now, what does he mean by that? He says, Have you not forgotten your redemption, forgotten your adoption, forgotten your justification, and forgotten your safety in Christ? Have you not also somewhat neglected to survey your hopes? Have you forgotten the truth? He says, The happiest of all Christians are those who never dare to doubt God, but take his word simply as it stands. Now, obviously, he's speaking relatively because no Christian never doubts. I mean, Romans 7 is all about our fight with sin and the fact that we will never be perfect in this world. And so let me just close by saying there are no perfect Christians in this fallen world, and therefore there is no perfect happiness in this fallen world. But we can be happier than we are in God if we pursue holiness. And one day we will be made perfect and we will know perfect happiness in God through Jesus our Lord. That is our hope, is that we will get a taste of the perfect happiness we will have one day. But we will not be perfectly happy here. We will be like Paul who says, I have unceasing grief in my heart for my people who have rejected their Savior. He says, we are sorrowful yet rejoicing. In this world, that's just the reality of life in a fallen world. But we can be happier if we're pursuing our happiness in God through holiness by trusting in Christ and what he's done for us and the love of God, the perfect love of God to us because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would just encourage our hearts to pursue our happiness in you in greater, deeper, richer ways. Help us to see the importance of holiness in doing so. Help us to see the importance of trusting Jesus and your love for us because of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us, which is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate in just a few minutes. Please be with us in this, and may you strengthen our faith and our fight to put to death sin and pursue our happiness in you and to grow in love for others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.